2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we're talking about, you guessed it, the Democrats in Philadelphia. Coming up, we have D.D. Guttenplan with comment and analysis of Bernie's speech on Monday night. The Bernie delegates in the hall and the question, has Bernie created a monster? And Amy Wilentz will take a step back from the daily deluge of urgent news updates to talk about gender in the campaign. Apparently, it's the first time we've had a woman running for president, and apparently not everybody is happy about that. First up, Alan Minsky talks with John Nichols about Hillary's speech and the finale of the convention. John, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation. And Alan, of course, is senior producer of our podcast.
3: This is Alan Minsky, and I am in the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, about 30 minutes after Hillary Clinton finished her speech in which she accepted the Democratic Party's nomination as the presidential candidate of the party. And I'm joined by John Nichols, who's the national correspondent for The Nation magazine. And John, first off, what do you think of Hillary's speech?
4: Well, in many ways, it was a classic uh, convention speech for a candidate of either party. What you saw was an appeal to unity, within the party, as well as then uh, a taking of the fight to your opponent, and finally some vision of of where you might want to go. Now, there's a unique dynamic to this convention, and that is that the appeal to unity was a tougher challenge than in many recent conventions. We have to go back I would argue at least in 1980 for the Democrats, where you had a nominee who had as much of a challenge. And, of course, 1980 was the year where Edward Kennedy challenged incumbent president Jimmy Carter. And, and so Clinton's task was, was distinct, and I was very intrigued by how she approached it. Very early in the speech, right after she thanked her family and, and many of her closest allies, she thanked Bernie Sanders. Not with a throwaway line of, well, I certainly want to say hi to my distinguished opponent and hope he enjoys his retirement. No, this was an extended soliloquy on Sanders and his supporters, thanking them for what they'd brought to this campaign, saying, your cause is our cause, talking about implementing the progressive platform, saying it referred to as the platform we wrote together. I mean, this was really a, a major outreach. In fact, I talked uh, just after the speech to Jim Zogby, one of her key appoint- one of Bernie Sanders' key appointees to the platform committee. I said, "How did she do?" And she- and he said, "Look, I've been at- going to conventions for decades. It's very rare that I've heard a nominee talk about the platform and celebrate the fact that that nominee was encouraged to add things from the other side and to say that's good." So he was very complimentary. He said it was the best he had heard her. Uh, that was important at this point. That was something she needed to do. It certainly did not get every Sanders backer to suddenly embrace the Clinton campaign. But I was in the hall some and watching, and I was struck by the fact that while the Clinton supporters were cheering very enthusiastically, there were a lot of Sanders supporters who were listening and hearing elements of of what they brought to this year's politics echoed in this speech. Uh, Will it be enough for everyone? No, of course not. Will it be enough for a lot of folks? Well, if we believe the polling data that shows a significant number of Sanders backers are going to vote for Hillary Clinton, I think this speech reinforced that in in a smart way.
3: In that sense, do you think that the speech almost was a microcosm of these four days here in Philadelphia? It was. I think it was a
4: speech that was rooted in these four days here in Mm. Philadelphia that, that recognized the need to reach out, to kind of keep working to make those connections. This is a big deal because the, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt what the Clinton people would have liked. They would have liked that on Monday Bernie Sanders gave his speech and on Tuesday he moved that her her nomination be accepted by acclamation and, and that that was that, that they didn't have to mention Bernie Sanders again. That, that probably is what they would have preferred. The Sanders... Delegates, grassroots sanders backers, really is something very important. He brought a lot of people into this process who had not been in it before, or maybe who'd been in it before, but always kind of on the outside trying to get in or make a get deliver a message. They were on the floor, their dissident politics resonated it was hurt, and uh, again, some people will tell you it wasn 't hurt enough. And I understand that but Hillary Clinton actually said, we heard you in the speech, and this is a dynamic of politics that we often lose sight of. Uh, we think that politics is always a, a zero-sum game, you know, that, that you either you win or you lose. There's no middle ground. The reality of politics is that you need to keep pressing. You keep pushing. You don't let somebody off the hook just because they say a couple nice things to you. You make demands and you make continual demands. Last night, on the floor, When President Obama was speaking, when Tim Kaine was speaking, you saw hundreds of people with their no TPP signs. And that's the continuing of the making of the demands. I think this is a very healthy thing, and and I think it is also something that is quite distinct. I've been to a lot of conventions in my adult life.
3: I don't think I've been to one this interesting. It's true. There were, in the hallways of this sports arena that this convention has been held in, uh, a, a considerable number of uh, protests across the past few days.
4: Absolutely, and fascinating protests, by the way, too. I'd say, it's, again, there were some people who were in the pure politics of the moment. Uh, Bernie Sanders backers walking out, uh, and some did. It wasn't a large, large group that I saw, but 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 there were folks who did. But there were also people marching through the hallways with their uh, uh, free Palestine mm-hmm. and, and support the Palestinians d- banners. Uh, there were people who were here uh, objecting to. What they saw is too little talk about climate change, making, their, making a noise. Now, this is such a big place, we have to be honest. And mm-hmm. not, every, not every protest is heard mm-hmm. by everyone, but there was a lot of it here. This was a rollicking convention, not one that, that sort of followed every script, and that's great.
3: I thought a very significant component of tonight's main stage events and also a, an element of Hillary Clinton's speech I think there was a lot of give to the Sanders wing of the party, as it were, on domestic policy. Uh, not a lot on foreign policy. Oh, this was yeah, this was staking right. her, her. She, this was confirming her stature as a hawk.
4: I think. I think that that anyone who sees Hillary Clinton as a some sort of peace advocate mm. uh, is missing both the history and and the current moment. Uh, she's clearly conscious of that, and she should be. Remember. <laughs> The main reason she wasn't nominated and probably elected president Mm -hmm. in 2008 Mm -hmm. was because of her stance on the Iraq War. We should absolutely not miss that reality. However, she kept that real tight in this. She didn't go on a big foreign policy soliloquy, and I think there was a reason for that. I think she really didn't want to scratch that wound,
3: so Mm -hmm. to
4: speak, when she did mention some of her foreign policy stance there were a chance of no more wars from mm-hmm. the floor. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily rock the hall, but they they were heard. And so I, I think that what you have with Hillary Clinton is a candidate who came into this race anticipating the possibility that she could, you know, remember she was the clear front runner at the start, that she could pretty much do things as she wanted, and, and it was as simple as that. She got a message in this race that that, especially on domestic policy, you can't, where you're going, that centrist stuff is not selling very well anymore. And I think also, to a smaller extent, she got a, some message that you know, you would be wise not to give the big hawkish speech at this convention, because it, it isn't going to be particularly well received. Now, the danger of this, and this is one thing, Alan, the danger of this, of course, is that what's said at a convention, what's said in a platform, is not necessarily what's done by a presidency. And so I would suggest that what the Sanders backers and the dissidents at this convention did, by continually challenging the, the certain nominee, continually challenging the nominee herself after she had gotten the gig, they gave an example of how progressives ought to approach the, the coming days. Many progressives will support Hillary Clinton for president. Some will not. But no matter what, there has to be a recognition that this presidential candidate, this nominee, seems to respond to pressure, not to, you know, gentle cajoling, right? So I think you saw some very healthy modeling here. And the last thing I will suggest is that this was a dynamic and fascinating moment as well, because even as we saw elements of uh, Hillary Clinton that people might disagree with, uh, issues that they, they weren't comfortable with, there was this fundamental reality that history was being made, that for the first time in more than 200 years, the United States of America has a major party that has nominated a candidate for the presidency who uh, is a woman, and that's a big deal.
3: And so now for the the party of entrenched patriarchy has its in super patriarchal patriarch at the as the standard bearer in 2016, up against a woman, and Trump received a bump from the GOP convention. Do you see a Hillary bump coming out of this convention, and anything that you think you've seen at this convention, and last convention, that's going to that's going to define the next few months going that's forward? A
4: very good question. And here's here's the best answer I can give you. Until tonight, I would not have said that there was going to be much of a bump. However. This speech did show an awareness of the dynamic of the convention that went further than I expected it would go. I think that will probably be heard by a number of folks, not just Sanders backers, but other folks. And remember, this is the key to this thing. I think maybe sometimes we fall into the, the uh, high school, you know, thing of, oh, she didn't like him, he didn't like her. No. At the core of this, there's a bunch of issues, fundamental issues. And Hillary Clinton, under some pressure, addressed those issues in very precise ways. She talked about free college. She talked about living wage. She talked about a host of economic and social justice issues. And frankly, the Democratic Party has done a very good job of addressing in recent years. And so uh, while I would not for a second suggest that we heard a Full on rejection of neoliberalism here we didn't what we did here was a an awareness that Americans really are troubled by economic inequality by the injustices that are so very evident
3: that will probably help her uh, one final question I cannot resist beginning in the middle of two thousand and fifteen this has been an Presidential election cycle with twists and turns defying expectations, seemingly almost on a daily basis. Your sense the next few months going forward, the excitement continues, or does this now sort of turn into a more conventional horse race?
4: Well, with all due respect, our dear friend Donald Trump (laughs) does not go anywhere quietly. (laughs) And so, as we look to the months ahead, I think we're guaranteed of a of a rollicking, intense, uh, often unsettling and volatile campaign. I just don't have any doubt that this is going to continue to be one of the most complex and in many ways unsettling presidential election years in our lifetime. Uh, I think people sometimes compare it to 1968, that to my mind is a mistake. I think the comparison uh, in a much deeper sense is uh, perhaps to some of the elections of the 1930s. We're not in the midst of a deep depression but when you see you know real questions about how America should be run, how authoritarian versus how you know libertarian or free, uh, this, this is big deal stuff, and uh, I don't think that, that this thing's going to get any gentler. Can you imagine that a debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is going to be pleasant and respectful? I, I, I would suggest to you it probably will not, and so uh, my sense is that we have a host of, of economic issues rooted in globalization, deindustrialization, automation that have forced a new dialogue in this country. I mean, it's just real, we're there. So there's intensity to that, there's volatility to that, and I think the 2016 campaign will be driven by that reality right up through November.
3: And I'll tell you one thing for certain, we will all look forward to hearing from John Nichols across these next few months. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you.
2: Reporting from the convention in Philadelphia on the Bernie side of things, we have D.D. Guttenplan. Of course, he's editor-at-large for The Nation, and he wrote the book about the magazine. It's called The Nation, A Biography. Don, welcome back.
5: Great to be back, Sean.
2: Well, Bernie, of course, was the star speaker on the first night of the convention, Monday night. Monday was the day we heard the Bernie delegates in the hall booing virtually every speaker, uh, refusing to get on board with the I'm with her project. Bernie himself was booed at caucus meetings on Monday morning. This was kind of the background of Bernie stepping up to the podium to give his long-awaited speech on Monday night. Remind us what happened and how that went.
5: Well, there was a lot of suspense on Monday. Essentially, the question was, would Bernie be able to land the plane? In other words, would he be able to bring his supporters who went through, as we all did, uh, this incredibly heady year, of starting as a kind of quixotic crusade and then exploding and taking the sense the center of American politics to the left and expanding vastly the universe of the politically possible, but nonetheless not winning the democratic nomination. So Bernie had to find a way to bring his supporters back down to earth because he's a serious person and a serious politician. And he's made it clear all along, not necessarily that he would fall in line with any Democrat, but he's made it clear all along, particularly as it looked more and more likely that the Republicans would actually nominate Donald Trump, that he regarded his own first obligation and that of his supporters as defeating Donald Trump. And as he said, defeating him badly. But on Monday, First of all, Bernie had a meeting with his supporters in which according to people who were inside that meeting, I was not inside that meeting. About half of them actually booed him when he got to the point where he said they had to vote for and support Hillary Clinton. He also was present at a meeting of the California delegation where there was a similarly hostile response to his tentative at that point efforts to bring down the plane. I, Learned through my own reporting that, in fact, quite a lot of the sort of shouting and chanting that took place Monday night at the Wells Fargo Center was begun by the California delegation or sections of the California delegation, since Hillary Clinton narrowly won California, and that in fact there was even I've been told a plan at some points to charge the podium by some Bernie busters. Uh, but somebody leaked it, and in any case, it it didn't happen. What did happen was quite a lot of chanting of Bernie, 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 uh, and a certain amount of booing whenever Kim Cain's name was mentioned. Really, I think that what happened next was partly luck and partly Michelle Obama's incredible persona that came through so clearly and the the great love that everybody in the arena seemed to have for Bernie people Hillary people, people with no particular candidate, and also scheduling, because it was interesting. There had been, the show was supposed to go last, and then they switched it so that Bernie was going last, and some Bernie people were unhappy about that. Other people were happy because traditionally the last speaker is the kind of highlight of the day. So in a way, it was a gesture of respect. And when I saw the schedule switch, I thought that this was like, one more bit of atonement for the democratic national committee leaks, you know, that this was one more way of showing the Bernie people that they were sorry by giving him a more prominent and even more prominent spot on Monday. But it also made a big difference that Michelle Obama spoke and that nobody booed anything Michelle Obama said so that by the time she was done, people were actually pretty calm and pretty able to listen to Bernie. and you know, he, he did a, I think a brilliant job of laying out the stakes and basically saying, you know, if you're thinking of staying home, if you're thinking of sitting this one out, think about the Supreme court and not just the Supreme court of justices that Trump would appoint, but what it would mean for civil rights and constitutional rights in our lifetime. And you know, if I can editorialize for a second, I mean, Please. look, I, I've been voting for Bernie Sanders since 1992. I want to keep voting for him for as long as I can. And if he were on the ballot, I would be thrilled. You know, I wanted him to win. But I really think that if you don't consider the stakes, as Bernie asked us to do yesterday, then you really need to either grow up or check your print.
2: Some people are now saying Bernie has created a monster I wonder if you think that's going to really be a problem for Hillary from now out. I know there's a new Pew poll out that shows that almost 90% of Bernie's uh, supporters say they will now vote for Hillary. I imagine there'll be more by November. But so what do you say to the people who think uh, Bernie created a monster?
5: I think the people who think that Bernie created a monster always thought that Bernie's people, Bernie's phenomenon was a monstrous phenomenon. I think, you know, as we used to say in the 60s, even though I was only 10 years old then, uh, trust the people.
2: Trust the (laughs) people.
5: If you don't trust the people and you've never trusted the people, then you think that the Bernie phenomenon is a monster. I think it's true that Bernie can't necessarily control what he created. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's great. I think people will think for themselves. They will carry Bernie's program and his message forward. But. There was a point that somebody made to me who's active in the nurses union and whose name I don't want to mention. This person said he voted for worse candidates than Hillary Clinton, so why wouldn't he vote for Hillary Clinton? And also, and I think this is a more salient point, when you look at the Democratic Party platform, which is essentially Bernie's platform, if you look at the Democratic program and you realize that Hillary Clinton never really had a program, you know, debt-free college, expanding Medicare, expanding social security, a public option. Those are all parts of Bernie's program. And the prospect, why wouldn't you vote for the prospect, prospect of seeing those things enacted into law? Of course, there's more to be done. Of course, it's imperfect. And of course, Hillary Clinton is not someone who you would want to turn your back on in the tight corner. I don't have any any illusions about Hillary Clinton some suddenly converting and becoming, you know, a Bernie crack. What you need are lots of other Bernie to keep Hillary Clinton, you know, to her word and make her stick to it and make her see that there'll be consequences if she doesn't. I'm not advocating anybody just fold up their tents and go home till November and vote for Hillary. I want people to stay out there, stay active, stay on the streets, keep fighting, keep shouting, but you know this is this is a chance to see how far we can get legislatively why wouldn't you take it
2: and bernie himself always argued this is not about me he said this is about changing america it's going to take millions and millions of people to do this and bernie says the best way to do this is to have hillary be president that gives us the space to push for these things which now she's officially
5: supporting my sense is that most, not all, but most of Bernie's supporters, I mean, like the vast majority of Bernie's supporters, will will or already have come around.
2: You and I have talked here many times about the future of the Bernie movement, whether and how it can maintain its identity as a progressive force in American politics, not just in this campaign, but in campaigns to come. I know you've been reporting this story at the Philadelphia Convention. What can you tell
5: us about that? Well, I think that there are lots of tendencies going forward. So I I just came from a really good panel uh, on the Working Families Party, which was organized by the Working Families Party and which had elected officials that they've either elected or, or endorsed from Bill de Blasio, New York's mayor on down to, you know, city council members in in Milwaukee and state office and office holders in New Jersey. So, you know, that is one approach The sort of inside, outside, you run as a Democrat because we live in a country with a two party system, but you don't belong. You don't sell your soul to the democratic party and you keep an organized base outside of the democratic party. Personally, I think that's a pretty good bet as a way forward. But there are, you know, there are movement people here. I also went earlier this morning to hear Jesse Jackson speak at a progressive Democrats of America event that actually the nation sponsored. And, you know, Jesse's always urging people to organize. He's also always urging Democrats to organize the unorganized and to get people enrolled to vote and to go to where, to go to where ordinary people are and get them registered. And you know, Jesse's been saying this for twenty years. And I think that on the one hand, the Sanders campaign revealed the hitherto unsuspected strength of progressives and that we we are the majority of the Democratic Party, and it's time that we acted like it. So I think that was a great revelation. Yes. But it did also it did also and this is one of the things that I saw last night, it did also reveal a, what's still a racial risk in the progressive movement. I mean I did not see a single person of color chanting or booing last night in the arena. Now, I'm not saying there weren't any, I'm just saying I didn't see any. And my sense is that that the sort of die hard bros who don't see what's at risk in a Trump presidency. I think that's partly an indication of the work that remains to be done by those of us on the left in terms of binding together this racial wound, which you know, why shouldn't the left have a racial wound? America has a racial wound. But nonetheless, we need to do a lot more work to bind it together and to, and to go where people are and bring, and bring our message to them rather than sit around and stomp our feet and say, why aren't they getting aboard our, our, our caravan?
2: D.D. Guttenplan, read his piece. Bernie Sanders just showed us what a mensch looks like at thenation.com. Don, thanks so much for talking with us today.
5: Thanks for having me, John.
2: Now it's time to take a step back from today's headlines and look at the bigger picture of gender in our politics. Apparently, it's the first time we've had a woman running for president, and apparently not everybody is happy about that. For comment, we turn to Amy Willence. She's a frequent guest here, longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book. It's about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back.
6: Thank you, John.
2: Let me start out by saying I voted for Bernie in the primary. The magazine endorsed Bernie, but now I'm with her against Trump. There are some good reasons to criticize Hillary, but today we're going to talk about some of the bad reasons. Where should we start? Maybe we should start with her voice.
6: Her voice, yeah. So the other day, Tom Brokaw, what should we call him? The mature commentator, anchorman, news person, uh, said about Hillary that she's always shrill and hectoring people when she gives her big speeches. Why would he say shrill? She's not really shrill. Shrill is high-pitched. She's gravelly. I can say as a co-postmenopausal person okay. with her that we get a little gravelly, but we don't get shrill. And the thing is, that's just an old standard sexist adjective, shrill. And I think he should have received the memo, I, I believe, about a decade ago that we don't use that word anymore about women, Tom, just the way we don't say shiftless or inscrutable about other groups of people.
2: She's also told that she should stop shouting.
6: If she should stop shouting, Trump should stop shouting. Everyone was shouting. In fact, the only person I've seen who doesn't shout is Tim Kaine. (laughs) Because he doesn't feel he has to shout. Because he's a white man. No, but Trump shouted his entire speech. It was unbelievable. It was was horrible. Another thing. Hillary gets
2: criticized all the time for her smile.
6: Yeah, her smile is really awful. Her public smile. It's as though people are trying to teach her to smile, but they can't because she just never smiles in in private. So she, does it, she doesn't really have any familiarity with the expression. But I did a little research on the subject of smiling because okay. I remembered Jane Goodall's uh, first book about the chimpanzees in Africa that she worked with. And it had a page full of pictures of chimpanzee facial expressions. And Things have gone farther since Jane Goodall. So I found this facial expression categorization by chimpanzees using standardized stimuli written by professors at Portsmouth and Emory Universities. So Hillary's, if you wish to know, her smile is open-mouthed in Chimp World, which Dartmouth anthropologist Kess Schroyer says indicates nervousness, fear, distress, and sometimes excitement. Oh, dear. Ivanka's smile, see, I wanted to go farther than just Hillary. Yes. Hers is full toothed and indicates fear. And I wanted to add to that fear, which both Ivanka's and Hillary's smiles indicate in Chimp World, is why women smile so much, actually. If you look at pictures of women and men being interviewed, you'll find the women are smiling all the time. They're trying to placate a perceived aggressor. And then I wanted to get to Trump's weird closed lip, puffy smile. Chimps do this, too. You'll be interested to hear. It's called the bulging lip face. And not surprisingly, it signifies anger.
2: I guess we should also talk about her body, which has gotten a certain amount of attention.
6: You know, why do we care? Also, may I say that the person who she's opposing, we could talk about his body for a long time, too, because that's not the most spectacular body on on offer. In these United States. But yeah, Hillary, Angela Merkel, you're not going to go after them because they're sex goddesses. This is not really about being nubile and fertile. This is about running a country. So when people talk about her body, it's, it's just off the point. And I think it sort of brings you right down to Ivanka and what, what was she really doing at the Republican convention. Because, like, obviously she is nubile and she is fertile and she has a classically great body for a woman her age. So what are, what are they selling us? What is she selling us?
2: We're talking about gender and politics. I, I think it's important to note that Hillary and Ivanka aren't the only candidates who have a gender. Donald Trump has one, too. He, he is masculine.
6: Yeah, yeah. He's a uh, deep Profound macho man. Everything about his political speech, everything about his entire discourse is based on a kind of hyper masculinity, so that and indeed he's the perfect candidate to be opposing the first woman nominee for president of the United States, because it this contest sharply delineates the difference between an old guard macho guy and a woman.
2: I have to note that. He was not a jet fighter pilot who spent six years in a prison dungeon. He doesn't ride horses without his shirt on, so... Oh, well,
6: he has a problem, obviously. He has a personal problem that anyone who's watching him can see right off the bat, and he has a problem that's shared, I think, with a lot of people who are insecure. He wants to prove his point, that he's really manly, and he does it over and over again. He's a bully because he's... He's a, you know, a tubby little guy who made a lot of money. And the money gives him the chance to make him feel masculine.
2: Now, he's said some, let's call them unkind things about women, I believe.
6: Oh, he's fabulous. Here's one. A person who is flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. So you don't have to ignore the grammar in, in a lot of these because it's so Trumpian. Here's another. If I were running The View, I'd fire at Rosie O'Donnell. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. I'd say, Rosie, you're fired. <laughs> or This one I love because it's a, a colleague of mine, uh, a newswoman. He sent a note to Dale, Gail Collins, who's a columnist at the New York Times, after she wrote a column that criticized him. He sent her a copy of her own column, with her thumbnail picture circled and, and this scrawled comment, face of a dog, oh, no. with an exclamation point. Oh, that's horrible. Or, or then there's the tweet about Ariana Huffington. And he goes straight for, you know, your most vulnerable moment. She is unattractive inside and out. I fully understand why her former husband left her for a man. He made a good decision. Mm. And just one more. You know it doesn't really matter what they write about you as long as you've got a young and beautiful piece of ass. It's not savory, his his attitude. Oh, I left out his comment about his own daughter. May I? Please. He said, you know, if I weren't Ivanka's father, I probably would go out with her.
2: Part of the Republican convention, for many people, the highlight of the Republican convention was Donald Trump putting on display the women in his family, his wife and his daughters. That's something he wants us to know about. And what exactly is it that he wants us to know?
6: Well, number one with Melania, he wants you to know he has a young and beautiful piece of ass, (laughs) but she's 45. So we debate how long she's going to be in the picture. And then he wants you to know that he has at least one quite successful daughter. You'll note at the end of the convention, he thanked his wife and Ivanka. He didn't thank Tiffany. Yeah, what went wrong with Tiffany? Tiffany's just not as powerful as Ivanka and probably more insecure in the family. Something, a later child, not his first. So what he's trying to show you is it's what people are talking about, about the wife-daughter problem in Donald Trump's mind. The wife should be a beautiful stay-at-home sex object who doesn't make money and is arm candy. And the daughter should project the Donald. So the daughter has to be, of course, she has to be attractive. Where did she get such good genes, Ivanka? It must be mom. So she has to be attractive, but she also has to be successful, smart, capable, poised. He doesn't mind a smart daughter as long as she's also sexy, but the wife shouldn't be too smart because that would challenge Donald right at home.
2: The fascinating thing about Ivanka's speech was that the way she tried to, dare I say, feminize her father as someone who believed in equal pay for women, who treated women, employees well, who would support family leave, maternity leave. She said, I'll fight right next to him for these things. I guess she'll go out on the campaign trail and and try to convince uh, Republican women that that her father is a good feminist. But really, from what she was saying, she belongs in the Hillary campaign.
6: Basically, she said at the start of that speech that she is a Democrat. And certainly her speech about her content, about women's rights and, and what should be done for women, is basically the Democratic platform. It doesn't have to do anything with the Republican platform, by the way, nor does it comport with her father's habits of speech and thought. Uh, Like any king, he relies on his offspring as the only trustworthy uh, advisor, so it could be that she'll be in charge of women policy under him and all this will come to pass. But, you know, it's kind of unbelievable in a man who says what he says and does what he does.
2: So Ivanka is a mother, an entrepreneur, and a effective political voice, probably the most effective political voice.
6: Certainly that we saw at that convention. That,
2: that we saw at that convention. You and I also discovered that she has a website, Ivankatrump.com. It's an amazing thing.
6: Oh, it's a huge, very well funded site for for youngish professional women. And her idea is to make it the go-to site for such women. it's It's a really interesting site for for people to understand how she's thinking about women if you find that that's important, and how a lot of young women, sort of Republican young women, I would say, are thinking about their futures. But for me, when I look at this site, which has uh, many different aspects, it has a blog, it has a retail section. She sells a lot of things on her site. She's writing a book called "Women Who Work," and uh, that I'm sure will be sold on. And in fact, her appearance at the Republican Convention, to my mind, was simply the beginning of her book tour for that book. Uh, she is a salesman, I believe that is her genetic inheritance from her dad. <laughs> okay, but the site is permeated with a kind of soft sexism. It's not really a palpable thing. It's not anti-women, but it's inherent systemic sexism. I would say we're grooming and behavior and clothing and attitude. They're all kind of geared to make you a feminine and feminized and gendered successful person. And if you look at it carefully, it's all about being female in front of the male gaze. Check it out, listeners.
2: <laughs> Ivanka Trump. But don't
6: check it Trump. out too often. Don't click too much. <laughs> you don't want to be part of the Ivanka Tsunami.
2: I want to talk about one other element of gender that's been on display at, at the Democratic Convention, and that was the first night speech by Michelle, which for a lot of people was the best thing about the Democratic Convention. She's an amazing woman, I have to say. I felt a little bit bad that her whole speech was framed about motherhood and caring about children, because we know that she's could do and she's interested in it a lot more than motherhood and children. You may remember what she said when Barack got elected.
6: This is the first time I've ever ever felt proud about my country.
2: Yeah, and that got her in a lot of trouble and ever since then she's learned to only talk about some things and to say what she said on Monday night, which is America is the greatest country in the world and by implication and we're going to make it better. That's what you're supposed to say if you're the first lady or if you're really anybody in politics. But she spoke as a mother of young daughters who are growing up now and how she supported Hillary for many reasons. But the number one reason was that Hillary was a role model for her own daughters.
6: But that's important. And one of the things she was doing in that speech was not about sexism or about motherhood, but about the future. And what The Greatest Country on Earth was about was a refutation of the doom and gloom, uh, death and paranoia, terror speech of Donald Trump at the convention. So she's saying, we live in the greatest country on earth. Don't you mistake that, and we're going to make it better. It was all about the future, and then the children were shown to be the future, and then you want them to be looking up to a powerful woman. So I get that. I think it's fair. The only thing is you don't want your president to be completely described by her relationship to her children and her husband. And it is disturbing that Hillary on her Twitter ID says, you know, mom, wife, grandma as the first things with which she defines herself. But, you know, frankly, I felt sorry for Obama as the first black president because, He was limited in his behaviors by being a black man in the White House. And I feel sorry for Hillary as the first female nominee of the Democratic Party because she, too, is limited. And she is not saying to me, who's listening, she's not saying I'm really a mom and a wife, first of all. But she is saying that to voters because she thinks that's what they want to hear from a woman. So she reflects back. The systemic sexism that's out there, and that's a problem.
2: The systemic sexism that's out there is a problem. Amy Willens, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts.